Okay. Uh, so, um, Christian, would you mm-hmm. read verses 25 to 27? Right. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But there were standing by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his household. Jesus isn't one to say more than is necessary. Is he? Isn't he? I mean, this woman, here is your son. And then he says to John, here is your mother. Mm-hmm. End of statement. No, would you please take her into her home, take care of her the rest of her life? None of that. Just, it's like passing on uh, his, his greatest treasure, in a sense, humanly speaking. Yeah. But, it, but he's very... He's very brief in the way he does it. And you think about all the things that Jesus says. He, he never says anything more than is absolutely necessary. Uh, everything has a very succinct uh, and important element to it. He chooses his words very carefully yeah. and very wisely whenever he speaks an economy of words. Uh, the Hebrew Bible, I'm used to that, but the Hebrew Bible has an economy of words, uh, particularly in narrative writing. They say, they say things very much like Jesus is saying them here, and they, they say them very, almost cryptically, so that you, there's actually mean, layers of meaning behind those words and the way they're crafted that you wouldn't get on the surface. And, and that explains, you know, Jesus said a lot about not about idle words and those not being appropriate. Mm. I think if we were to uh, say less, we could say more. That's really a case where less is more. So, there's two Marys here, besides Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's the only time we see her mentioned. Um... His mother's sister? Yeah, and she's not Mary, the wife of Clopas. Uh, So it's his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So there are actually four Marys. No, three Marys. Three, yeah. Three Marys, and one who's not Mary, obviously. Yeah. Uh, There wouldn't be two Marys in the same family. Uh, This address of his mother as woman, what do you do with that? He does the same thing when, yeah, when the, the mer- wedding of Feast of Canaan. Uh, man, by the way, I just realized something. I have n- more and more noticed frames in books. There seems a lot of the frames in the Gospels and, and in the New Testament, a lot of the books in the New Testament have frames. Something at the be- near the beginning of the book and something near the end of the book. Uh, it is chapter 2. That Jesus deforms that that miracle at Cana, and refers to his mother as woman. And now here it is in chapter 19, two chapters before the end. He refers to her as woman. It's almost like a frame. Yeah. 
So what do we do with that? Woman, what have I to do with you? It sounds so disrespectful to us. Yeah. To us. Yeah. To us, yeah. But, you know, Jesus, with his whole character, would never be disrespectful like that. This actually, to call her woman was actually a respectful form of address to your mother. It was not disrespectful. I mean, we use the word woman as such a pejorative term, yeah. as, you know, as a put-down. So if I said to my mother, woman, <laughs> you know, I would have this really slap her in the face kind of rhetoric. But this is a, a thing of, distra- of, of respect. And from that hour, so apparently John, as soon as Jesus is dead, he takes her into his home. So Joseph has died at this point? He had died, I think, before Jesus ever entered his ministry. Oh, really? Yeah. It, it seems to me, I know that other people think differently. They think that Mary kept on bearing him children after Jesus. But it's more likely that Mary was Joseph's second wife. His first wife maybe had died. And she was considerably younger than he, as would be the case uh, with a second marriage in that time period. So um, I think he's been dead a while. Okay, uh, Shalina, would you read 28 to 30, please? After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, said the scriptures might be fulfilled. Uh, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and bowed his head. He gave up his spirit. What is sour wine? Was it like their version of pain medication? It was used that way, but... um... All you have to do is take a glass of grape juice and let it sit in a room at room temperature for about 10 days, maybe two weeks, maybe longer. And it will turn into sour wine. It kind of tastes like vinegar. It tastes really quite nasty. So this was apparently uh, a pain reliever that they kept near the crucifixion site. It would have been really sour if it was just sitting there all the time. So Jesus says, I'm thirsty. Keep in mind, you know, he's, he's had nothing to drink since the upper room. And this is now, uh, let's see if we can find the time here. John doesn't seem to mention... So that was like Thursday night, right? When they had the Passover, or they had the Last Supper? Yeah. And so, so this is Friday afternoon, mm-hmm. I think, by now. So like 18 hours. Here. What is the significance of this, I'm thirsty, which is to be expected. Of course he's thirsty. Yeah. He's had nothing to drink since Thursday night. And he's in the full blazing sun on the cross, gasping for air, slowly suffocating with crucifixion. It's a, a prophecy in, in Psalm 69. Cross references, which is like a, it says a cry of distress and imprecation on anniversaries. 
It's by David. And Here says Psalm 69? Yeah, 69. So like starting at verse 20, it says, Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. And they also gave me gall for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Mm-hmm. That's the sour wine. Mm-hmm. I, my version has, they gave me poison for food. Mm. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Mine references Psalms 22, 15. Wait, for, for this verse? For I thirst. I think, yeah. Well, that's... Psalm 22 is the most, most significant messianic psalm. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. So it's, it's referencing his thirst. The other one is referencing what they gave him for his thirst. Mm. Okay. So they're both appropriate here. Besides fulfilling prophecy, which is important, mm. is there any other significance? Is there any theological significance to this? Oh. We'll turn to the theme of the book. Yeah. The water. The water, the blood. The wine the wine symbolizes blood in the book of John. Uh the water, the blood, and the spirit. It's interesting that he says this, not because I know what you're leading to, just because of what just occurred in the last few verses where he's doing something for others. And now it seems it's so uncharacteristic of him to... To actually complain about his own yeah. needs. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know what you're leading to, but it's interesting that it's here. Which means that he always puts others first and himself last. Is that, is that what we can learn from that? We're taught when we take off on a flight that we're supposed to get this air mask on ourselves first before we mm-hmm. help others because we could pass out and and then not be able to help anyone else and we all die so we kind of think in the reverse take care of yourself first so that you can take care of others Mm -hmm. Uh, Jesus uh, reverses that here tell me can you think of any story in the Old Testament that this actually fits with think the hyssop oh the Israelites. Yeah, when he put the branch of hyssop in the water and then it cleared the water. Right? I wasn't thinking of that. Uh, but you could you could draw an analogy from that. <laughs> I'm thinking of something with blood and a hyssop. Oh, okay. oh, where they spread the blood on the door. Dormant. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Here is the blood being spread on the Passover lamb on his mouth. So you, the wine? Oh, the wine meaning the blood. The wine represents the blood. Why is that? Um, it's just, it's a symbol, I, I get it from Revelation, which of course John wrote too. Yeah. I mean, you also have it in the in the Last Supper, where he says, drink this, this is my blood. This, this is, yeah, oh, okay. right, that's what I'm thinking of, okay. actually. That is this, is, this is the blood of the New Covenant. Mm-hmm. Wow. So this is, this is the... Passover lamb actually consummating his mission. And what does that suggest about the meaning of the Passover? The meaning it had to the Israelites? or the, mean, the meaning that we now can look back and say, oh, that's what that meant. 
No, it wouldn't mean much to the Israelites. <laughs> they didn't stand at the foot of the cross. <laughs> well, I think it, it shows even more, you know, how much it points to Jesus and how like, you have the, ta- the Jesus, type. Jesus said, I am the door. Right? Yeah. The sheep go in and out through me to find pasture. Jesus is not another pharaoh. Put all the images together. Um, I probably should hand out again, maybe next time, my handout on the blood, on the meaning of the blood. <clears throat> if you if you do a comparative analysis of of the blood throughout the Bible, the blood sanctifies. the The blood um, in John represents the truth. And that's, that's really what I come down to, because the truth is what sanctifies us, according to John 17. Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. So the blood represents the truth about God. And we're about to come to its representation in Jesus' death. So this is a foreshadowing of what is going to happen in the next paragraph. So why don't we read that? I'll read it. It's verse 31, verses 31 to 37. Since it was the day of the preparation, the Jews did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath, especially because the Sabbath was a day of great solemnity. So they asked Pilate to have the legs of the crucified men broken and the bodies removed. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you also may believe. His testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth. These things occurred so that the scripture might be fulfilled. None of his bones shall be broken. And again, another passage of scripture says, They will look upon the one whom they have pierced. This thing about the Sabbath. Imagine keep trying so hard to keep the Sabbath holy and yet murdering the one whom the Sabbath represents, the one who created the world and who never used violence in that creation. It, it seems that in trying to keep the Sabbath holy while they crucified Jesus, they're breaking it to pieces and totally destroying it. And yet, Jesus calls us back to the real meaning of the Sabbath when he says, it is finished, in verse 30. Because there's only one other time in Scripture, I shouldn't say that, there's two other times in Scripture where those words are uttered. Now the host of them was finished. and Now the... Let me read it. (laughs) Uh, Genesis 2, verse 1, I think it is. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And on the seventh day God finished the work he had done, and he rested on the seventh day. Actually, the word is ceased on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it because on it, God ceased from all the work which he had done in creation. You can almost hear God at the end of creation week. It is finished. 
And the other time that the words, it is finished, are uttered is in Revelation. And I'm not remembering where. <laughs> so this may take us a while to find. Well, there's a verse in chapter 21 where he, he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega in the beginning and the end. Okay, there are two, three, there are four times. <laughs> you look at uh, Revelation 16, the plagues. And there came, uh, verse 18, and there came flashes of lightning. Let's see, wait a minute. Uh, verse 17. The seventh angel poured his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. Mm. It is finished. And there's this violent earthquake, just like at the cross. By the way, when we come to Revelation, which may be several years from now, <laughs> I hope you're listening online because it, there's a way of looking at the plagues that actually go right down the line in the same order of all the things that have to do with Jesus' death. The first you have poured his bowl, the first angel poured his bowl on the earth, and a foul and painful sore came on those who had the mark of the beast. Jesus is scourged. A second angel poured his bowl into the sea and became like blood, corpse, and every living thing in the sea died. Uh, the blood from his scourging and the blood from the thorns on the crown of his head. And then the third angel poured his bowl into the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood, the nails in his hands and feet. That must have shed blood. And then the fourth angel poured his bowl on the sun and was allowed to scorch them with fire. Jesus was crucified midday. And it was hot, probably, maybe not as hot as it would be in the summertime, this is spring. But it was warm, and he's thirsty. So I thirst. Uh, the fifth angel poured his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Darkness enveloped Jesus at the cross. The sun was shining in its strength, and suddenly darkness enveloped the cross. Third angel, sixth angel poured his bowl on the great Euphrates River, and its waters were dried up in order to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Foul spirits like frogs coming from the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the mouth of the false prophet. False prophet. And they assembled them at the place in Hebrews called Harmageddon. Harmageddon. Um, this is, you know where Harmageddon is. Har in Hebrew. This is Hebrew, actually. Harmageddon. It's Harmagedo, mountain of Megiddo. Do you have any idea where Megiddo is? I wish I had a map. If you look at a map, let me see if there's one. Yes, good. Here we go. You see this little jut of land out into the Mediterranean Sea. And here's Mount Carmel. And right here, is the plain of Megiddo. And here's Megiddo itself. Harmagiddo. What is the mountain of Megiddo? Now you could say it's this little rise right here. But Har is a mountain. It's not a little <laughs> hill. Hill is Gavia in, in Hebrew. Mountain is Har. This is the mountain of Megiddo. The Harmagiddo is Mount Carmel. What is Mount Carmel known for in prophetic scripture? What's it most famous for? With Elijah. Elijah, exactly. What was that whole event that he called them out to? About? 
Well, it was God versus Baal. God versus Baal. And they had to make up their make a decision between, are we going to serve a God like Baal, who is all about power and authority and exercising authority and control over people? Or are we going to serve a God like Yahweh, who empowers? And, and you have to study the whole theology between Yahweh worship and, and Baal worship in order to understand what I'm saying. But um, Baal, in the Canaanite literature, we call, the, we call that literature the Baal cycles. Baal conquers Yom in order to have power and kingship over all the gods. So his, his very purpose in existence is to rule is to rule over people. And this is extremely important to John because you remember Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my followers would fight to be, keep from being handed over to the Jews. My kingdom is not from there. So when, when in Revelation, it talks about, uh, Revelation 16, it talks about this harmagedo, this, the battle, it is the battle of the mind. It is the battle of everyone having to make up their minds. It is during the plagues, and during the sixth plague especially, when they have to make up their minds for or against God. And it's based on what kind of person God is. Is he a ball? Or is he like Jesus? Now you got me really interested in studying the two. <laughs> yeah. So I can understand it more. Yeah. So... Then, so this is this is what the cross calls us to. Yeah. And the three unclean spirits from the beast, the false prophet, and the mouth, and the dragon. That's reminiscent of the Egyptian plagues, isn't it? Frogs hopping everywhere. Yeah. But uh, there are three. And they come from these three, this, this triune, satanic way of authority. So in order to run a false kingdom... You need a dragon-like power that's going to coerce and force people into line. You need a beast who's going to exercise that authority of the dragon and force people into line. And you need a false prophet to deceive everybody and put propaganda out there. And that's what happens all through Jesus' life on earth. But at the cross is the place where we have to make that decision. Because it's at the cross where we see the clearest revelation of the Father. So then a loud voice comes from the throne saying, It is finished. It's interesting. It comes from the temple, from the throne. Where's that in the, in the most holy place? I mean, in the, in the sanctuary, in the temple. In Herod's temple. Oh, in Herod's temple? Where's the throne? In Herod's temple. It's the Ark of the Covenant. What happens to that throne? When Jesus dies. The curtain? The curtain. The curtain gets torn. So that the throne is exposed. So now the voice from the throne is, is paralleling that and saying it is finished. The temple, that curtain is, is torn so right at just moment. at that moment when Jesus says it is finished. And then you have this violent earthquake. And nature is turned out of its course. So the plagues represent Jesus' death, which means that 
the plagues are not something God does directly to the wicked. It is, it is simply the consequences of having rejected Jesus at the cross. And, I mean, there's so much more I could show you, but we don't have time for today. Um, our time is nearly up. But um, that's, that's the context of the third, it is finished. And you had another one in 21, right? Yeah, 21 verse 6, I believe, where it's kind of like when everything is almost done. And this is the one that parallels creation, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. The frame. <laughs> oh, yeah, from the beginning to the end of the Bible, the frame. Right, it is the giant frame. Then he said, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And this is, by the way, I was just watching and showing my students a movie on William Tyndale, who translated the New Testament. Yeah. And in the movie, it shows him trying to wrestle with I am the author and finisher of our faith, that phrase that we get from Tyndale. Mm. And he was like, author, R.K. does not mean, uh, it's actually a word that includes R.K. in it. It does not mean uh, beginning, like it wasn't there before and now it begins. Um, and, and I guess either, likewise, tell us, does not mean end as in the end. It means completion. So the author and the finisher is how Tyndale translated that. Uh, and here in verse 6, uh, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The, the beginning that is the, the one who creates everything, the one who starts it all up, and the, the completer. I'm the one who completes it. And now we have a new creation. So this is... Uh, this is Sabbath, right here, embedded. I personally think, and I know that some will disagree with me, but I personally think that when God recreates the heavens and the earth, He's going to do it in six days, and we're going to be gone. <laughs> we didn't think you could do that. That would be so amazing that we could, like, watch. Watch Him create. We can actually watch it and go, oh, that's why we were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be really cool. <laughs> and then we'll have Sabbath. It is finished. So this whole thing has to do with Sabbath. Remember, those who partake of the plagues, who experience the wrath of God, have no rest day or night. Why? Because Sabbath isn't in their picture. What Sabbath stands for is everything that we have, that the meaning of creation week, and the, I'm talking about theology now, the theological meaning of Creation Week, the theological meaning of Passover, uh, Passion Week, culminating with the death of Jesus, and the theology of the plagues and what that means. What is the wrath of God? And then the theology of a new creation. To me, the cross is central. Just as God did not create the world using violence, and to me that's the biggest reason to reject evolution. Um, he did not create the world using violence. Neither is the atonement thing. He used violence to save us. We did the violence to Jesus. Sin did the violence to Jesus, not God. That's what the cross is supposed to make clear. And the plagues are the outbreak working of that. 
principle and the new heaven and the new earth is simply a reestablishment of a God who does not use violence. And there is no more violence. So my, my favorite text that they're found twice in Isaiah, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that at the foot of the cross, things which otherwise we wrestle with and struggle with and do not understand fully become clear. We ask that you will embed in our minds an aversion and a rejection of all that is violent, that we will be with the new Jerusalem and not Babylon. We pray this and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.